With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. It's Lars Larson. Thanks for listening to my podcast and for listening to The Lars Larson Show. Are you approaching retirement or maybe you've just changed jobs? If so, you'll probably now have control of your 401k or IRA. Would you like to buy some property, notes, loans, start a new business, or even buy crypto? You can with a self-directed IRA. For more than a decade, I've been telling you about setting up a self-directed IRA through IRA Advantage. And while you may now hear other companies say they offer self-directed IRAs, you need to find out if they're truly self-directed. With a truly self-directed retirement account, You can make any investment the law allows. Whether you're talking about true diversification, starting your new business, or investing in private holdings, IRA Advantage through a truly self-directed IRA can make that happen. Take it from me, Lars. You've worked hard for your money. IRA Advantage will work hard to keep it yours. Would you like to learn more about truly self-directed IRAs? Then visit IRAAdvantage.com. View our videos and call IRA Advantage. That's IRAAdvantage.com. Either President Biden believes in open borders or the people he's put in charge of his border policy are not qualified to manage a food truck. That is Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana talking about slow Joe Biden's visit for the first time in his entire life. After more than 50 years in politics, Joe Biden finally went to the Mexican-American border for the very first time. Welcome to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I do want to get to your phone calls and emails, and we'll do that shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you always go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to me instead if you'd rather not call. That's talk at LarsLarson.com. And we'll get to our Twitter poll question here in just a moment. But where to find it? At Lars Larson Show on Twitter. And if you don't like Twitter, go to my website at LarsLarson.com. So slow Joe Biden, who has been ignoring the massive invasion by illegal aliens that now numbers more than 6 million people who've come into this country. Now, if you hear that number and you say, Lars, where'd you get that number? I got it from Customs and Border Protection. And why do I say 6 million? You're hearing other numbers like 4 million and 2 million. You hear a lot of people who say, well, in the last fiscal year, the fiscal year runs from the 1st of October to the 31st of September, or in the last calendar year. I like to count it from the beginning of the disaster, from the beginning of the invasion, which began on the day that Joe Biden took the oath of office. And at that point, he began to fulfill 
the promise, not a good thing, but a bad thing in this case, the promises he had made as a candidate as he campaigned from his basement in Delaware and told Americans and told people all over the world, if you come to America and I am the president, we will let you in across the border. And people listened. It was not a good thing for America. Joe Biden has now overseen by the numbers the single worst border crisis on record. But he finally said he was going to go to El Paso. He realized this problem has become so gigantic that he can no longer ignore it. Remember back in May, the first year he was president, May of 2021, coming up on not quite two years ago, when he finally realized, well, I have to say something about this. So he said, I'm going to put Kamala Harris my vice president in charge of the border crisis, which was, well, they weren't calling it a border crisis then, but it is by any reasonable definition. In fact, I'll tell you what, I'll use this as a reasonable definition. Back when Barack Obama was president of the United States, his Homeland Security Secretary was a man by the name of Jay Johnson. And Jay Johnson was asked, well, how bad does it have to get before we call it a crisis? And Jay Johnson, Homeland Security to President Barack Obama, Vice President Joe Biden, said if it gets to a thousand people crossing the border illegally every day, that is a crisis. A thousand people a day. Do you know how many people are crossing the border right now? Eight thousand people per day. And do you know how many are going to start crossing once Title 42 is lifted? Because Joe Biden has been doing everything he can to get rid of Title 42. When that happens, his own Homeland Security experts say it is going to rise to 15,000 people a day or 15 times the number that Jay Johnson said would constitute a crisis. Well, Joe Biden did not invite Governor Greg Abbott to even meet with the president. Although I guess the night before Joe Biden's visit on Sunday this past weekend, his office got a message and they said, well, if the, you know, if the governor of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, wants to have something to say to the president, there's an opportunity. So Greg Abbott put together a scathing letter in which he said to the president, you are emboldening the drug cartels. You are emboldening the cartels that engage in human trafficking. And he also said this. Take a listen. Biden is there today to look at a sanitized El Paso uh, so that he can do all he can to help and aid the illegal immigrants as opposed to stopping them from coming into our country. Now, that's Governor Greg Abbott, and he mentioned sanitizing El Paso. There was a time in the late 1800s when the Empress of Russia would take tours around the country, and her handlers knew she wanted to see all these cute little villages that were all cleaned up. So they made something called a Potemkin village. It was a fake so that as the empress went by in her boat, she could look and see cute little painted-up villages with well-dressed, well-cared-for, well-fed people. In other words, a total sham. Well, even the folks in El Paso realize this is what they did. They have been overrun by thousands and thousands of illegal aliens who are camped out all over their town. What happened in the days before Joe Biden came to visit? Well, they cleaned it all up. They scooped up all those, Ill, all those illegal aliens camped out on the streets and simply moved them. So when Joe Biden got there, they had their town, or their city, uh, company ready for the president to visit and look around and say, well, I'm told there's an invasion, but I don't see any sign of it. And on top of that, Senator Marsha Blackburn makes the point that Joe Biden's border invasion is driving America's deadly drug crisis. Listen to that. Biden has had 4.3 million 
illegal aliens coming to that southern border since he became president. 16,000 pounds of fentanyl was apprehended last year. That's enough to kill 3.3 billion people. The cartels have turned human trafficking into a $13 billion a year business. And Joe Biden isn't doing much of anything about it. And that is a problem. Take a listen again to Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. President Biden needs to come down here. Uh, he needs to put a stop to this. Uh, what you allow is what will continue. This isn't good for the people coming in, and it's not good for the American people. If he doesn't do this, President Biden is going to become known very quickly, if, if not already, uh, America's in, illegal immigration president. That's about right. By the way, our song guy, our parody guy, Jim Gossett, if we've got that handy, Jim Gossett was even moved to song by the president's visit, his sanitized visit to El Paso this weekend. Take a listen to that. President Biden needs to come down here. I will get to that a little bit later. Fact is, Joe Biden went down there for show. Oh, here's Jim Gossett. Take a listen. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, aliens come in the millions or more. Nighttime they sneak past the fences and checkpoints. Joe Biden opened our southern back door. He didn't care if Americans suffered. He didn't care he was causing a mess. Where is Kamala in all of this chaos? Lying to us and avoiding the press. Do you plan to visit the border? Uh, um, not today. <laughs> Each night we see more and more of them crossing, costing us more all of the time. That is our song guy, our parody guy, Jim Gossett. Glad to be with you and always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. And the Radio Northwest Network serving the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. When we come back, what happens when you're watching a ball game at a public high school in the Northwest and they start shooting outside? We'll get to that in the nonsense next. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of nonsense. Right. You're bloody well right. You know he got a right to say. This is the Northwest Nonsense. How much longer do we have to sit for this nonsense? That great moment every day where Lars brings you the cold, hard facts without any liberal wokeness from the daily dead, fish wrapper, or mainstream media bias. In the video from last Saturday night, you see students and fans run from the stands and flee from the basketball game that they were watching inside Franklin High School, in this case in Portland. The cause of the panic? Somebody shooting a gun in the parking lot outside the school. One kid suffered minor injuries from a possible graze wound. Sounds like exactly the kind of incident that should be handled by armed school police. Only school officials here in the Northwest, for the most part, have fired almost all the school resource officers. Their bizarre explanation is officers arrest kids when they break the law, and the schools don't want that to happen. I know, it sounds crazy, and as far as I'm concerned, it is crazy. In this case, the 15-year-old shooting suspect was arrested, and for now, he's in custody at a juvenile lockup. 
I say for now, because there's not a snowball's chance he's going to be held for long. And under Oregon's new laws, this juvenile shooter who could have killed somebody Saturday night cannot be treated as an adult for a crime that could have easily left his victim dead. It sounds like exactly the kind of school that sensible parents would pull their kids out of very, very fast. And many parents have been doing exactly that as the failing government-run schools teach successfully less and less and become more and more dangerous for their students and their staff. Glad to be with you on a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network proudly serving the Pacific Northwest with honestly provocative talk. And if you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. I'll talk about the Twitter poll question here in just a moment. It has to do with Seattle schools suing social media, saying it's social media's fault that the kids aren't learning. We'll get into that in just a moment. Our question of the day, Jim Arter writes in, Lars, so let me get this straight. Back in the summer, the Department of Transportation, in Oregon in this case, said American flags hanging from an overpass were a distraction and would not be allowed and that they would be removed. But now they want to put up some art at the Brookwood overpass on Highway 26. I'm not sure what this is supposed to look like when it's all done, but if it's visible from the freeway, wouldn't that be a distraction as well? I guess when it's a patriotic symbol in the liberal state of Oregon, it's a no-go. But when it's art, and well, then it's not a problem here. Thank you so much for your time. Signed, Jim. And now today's Daily Grill. Insane. Are you completely insane? Ridiculous. They get more and more ridiculous. Flat out dumb. You're even dumber than I thought. Who deserves today's Lars Grill of the Day? Maybe they're just really, really stupid. Presented by Rogue Conveyors. Go Rogue. I want to give today's Daily Grill to ODOT. That is the Oregon Department of Transportation. And for what? For failing to find the thieves on its own payroll for 12 long years while those thieves stole the public's money to the tune of $6 million. This was three former ODOT workers who've now been sentenced in the scheme. So this isn't just an allegation. They've been convicted of the crime. They stole $6 million. It went on for 12 years. And guess what? The state of Oregon didn't even notice. Three former ODOT workers have now been sentenced for a long-running theft and reselling scheme. The three worked at one maintenance station in Clackamas County, the Lawnfield ODOT station. The three, plus the wife of one of the ODOT employees, were accused of buying equipment using ODOT vendor accounts and then creating fraudulent invoices and then selling the items for personal profit. Now, I guess if you stole a few thousand dollars, you might think, well, they probably didn't notice that. ODOT's a big agency. But $6 million over 12 years, and they say the prime mover in that $6 million conspiracy, sentenced to 12 years in prison, managed to cover his tracks for about 15 years. John Tipton, 61 years of age, pled guilty, pleaded guilty to 36 charges, including first-degree aggravated theft. And guess what? He wasn't even shy about it. He apparently spent the money on BMWs, remodeling his home in Lake Oswego, and on vacations in Europe, according to the district attorney who handled the case. But I want to mention this as well. This guy gets hired to ODOT. He spends a year in prison in the late 1990s. And why was he in prison? He was convicted of credit card fraud. Now, I don't have the details on that case, 
But I would imagine that you have to engage in some pretty serious or long-standing or large-volume credit card fraud to end up spending any time in prison. As I pointed out to you before, about 75% of convicted felons in Oregon never see one single day in prison. Only 25% of convicted felons go to prison for any length of time at all. So if this guy is one of the worst of the worst, in other words, sent to prison for credit card fraud bad enough that they said this guy has to do some time in the big house, he's convicted of that in the late 1990s, and ODOT puts him in charge of money and credit cards and millions and millions of dollars, and he manages to then rip off the state to the tune of $6 million without the state even being aware of it for more than a dozen years. That's absolutely outrageous, and it suggests the state does not have very good management. Today's best email, but you can always send more to talk at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by the MEI Group, one of the largest heavy civil construction companies in the Northwest. Currently hiring and paying top dollar for project managers, engineers, and estimators. The MEI Group.com. Ed Horse writes in, Lars, I heard a report that California is losing population to Florida and Texas. That's very sad because every place a Californian lands gets politically ruined. Good examples are Oregon and Washington, and also their political impact on New Mexico, Montana, Colorado. Texas and Florida are the only strong conservative states left. We lose them to the leftists, and it will be very sad. Signed, Ed. Glad to be with you on a Monday. Always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. Our Twitter poll question today, should Northwest schools blame social media for the school's failure to educate students. There's been a lawsuit brought for a large amount of money by the Seattle Public Schools. And what they say is that social media, TikTok, Instagram, and other social media are to blame for the fact that the kids are not learning. They say it blames them for worsening mental health and behavioral disorders, anxiety, depression, disordered eating, cyberbullying, making it difficult to educate students and forcing schools to take steps like hiring additional mental health professionals, developing lesson plans about the effects of social media. Defendants, and in this they're talking about social media, have successfully exploited the vulnerable brains of young people, hooking tens of millions of students around the country into positive feedback loops of excessive use and abuse of the defendant's social media. I'm not going to argue that some social media, and especially TikTok, is not addictive. But for the schools to say, we have failed your kids, but we don't want to take the blame, we still want to get the billions of dollars of funding that you give to us, and we want to find somebody else we can blame and maybe even pry some money loose from? No. I think the schools should take responsibility for what they've done and what they've not done. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Coming up in a moment, why should the Supreme Court hear one case from the Pacific Northwest involving a public employee's labor union and the fact that they used forged documents to force people to stay as union members? We'll talk about that coming up next, and I'll get to your phone calls and emails on the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. 866-HEY-LARS. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our Twitter poll, should Northwest schools blame social media for the school's failure to educate your kids and students? I would say no to that. You can vote any way you like. It's found at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at LarsLarson.com on the web. It's always brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Business. Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. 
Uh, on Friday, I'd ask you this, inspired by our friends at Shiftwa, should a Northwest state rep keep his seat in the legislature about serial lying regarding his own life and his military service, so-called? Um, he didn't do the service he said he did. 89% of you agreed with me and said no. Only 11% said yes. Now, I've never been shy about telling people that I'm not a fan of unions. If you want to belong to one, you certainly have a legal right, a constitutional right to belong to one. But if you don't want to belong to one, and you try to get out, and the union then forges documents to force you to stay in because they want some of the money in your paycheck. I think that's just downright evil. Well, it turns out that the U.S. Supreme Court is considering whether or not to hear a case in lawsuits involving government employee unions that committed forgery to keep on deducting dues from their workers' paychecks against their will. Jason Dudash joins me now, who's director of the Freedom Foundation's Oregon chapter. Hey, Jason, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me on, Lars. Always a pleasure. So you think there's a decent chance that the Supreme Court, which considers writs of certiorari all the time, they consider whether or not to hear certain cases, they, they get thousands of requests, they hear you know a relatively small number of cases every year, is there a good chance the justices will say, we want to hear this one and we want to settle this one once and for all? Well, Lars, you know, you don't want to try too hard to read the tea leaves in scenarios like this, but... I'm certainly optimistic. Uh, you know and your listeners know that the Freedom Foundation appealed four cases to the U.S. Supreme Court in late January. Um, they have scheduled three of them uh, on the 20th, where we'll hopefully get a decision of whether or not they want to delay them, uh, deny them, or ask for a response from the unions. Uh, that's a pretty quick turnaround um, to get those scheduled, and that shows me that they're interested. And I think why they're interested is because how patently absurd uh, the situation we have in Oregon is. Uh, in 2018, the Supreme Court said in Janus that uh, they used pretty strong language, Lars, that before a government union can deduct any money from an employee's wages, that employee must effectively waive their constitutional rights. And that waiver must be, quote, freely given and shown by clear and compelling evidence. Uh, in response to these forgery lawsuits that we've brought, Lars, the Ninth Circuit said that there is actually no affirmative duty of, on government entities to assure that dues deductions are genuine. That just flies what? in the face. Oh, of the, hold on, of the, Jason. Of the just so people the understand this. The, the, Jason, just so people understand. So the Ninth Circus Court says that there's no duty that if the union come to you and say, hey, take money out of Lars's paycheck, if, if I happen to be an SEIU member or, or they claimed I was, and you say, well, it doesn't look like Lars is a member. And is that really his signature? And you say, no, nah, it's not his signature. It's forged. But you know what? We'd like to take his money. And the Ninth Circuit Court said there's no duty on the part of the government to make sure that somebody is having money removed from their paycheck with their permission? It's absurd as you make it sound. And I think that's why the Supreme Court is going to have a lot of interest in hearing these cases. Well, and why does it have to go to the... So, so they would have to override the Ninth Circuit Court, which, by the way, I think still holds the title in the United States for the most overturned federal circuit uh, court in America, where the Supreme Court is constantly overturning what they do. But why is there a legal issue when you say you forge somebody's name, you're taking their money? That sounds like something that, that could have been or should have been dealt with at a lower court level. When you forge documents and steal somebody's money, that's just fraud, plain and simple, isn't it? 
Oh, it absolutely is. And, and large, I, I would I would challenge you to try to imagine any other scenario where this would be allowed, right? Like imagine tomorrow I'm going to go to the state and I'm going to say, hey, we're going to sign up every single state employee to have automatic deductions out of their paychecks to donations to the Freedom Foundation. And if they don't want to do that, tough luck. It's going to be automatic. That it, it could not happen anywhere else. And it just shows how corrupt um, and deep the relationship that these government unions have uh, in the Northwest. Well, and one of the problems, you know that I've always objected to the idea that the unions get to use the state as the collection agency. I mean, if you want to be, I'm a member of the NRA, I'm a member of a number of groups, but I pay the money to them. If I owe them money, they have to come to me and collect the money. The idea that labor unions, only the public employee labor unions, can use the state's resources, the state's computers, the state's payroll staff to collect their dues should be offensive to just about anybody, including union members. They should say, hey, if we need to collect dues from our members, the union should do that, not the state. But of course, that's a political decision, isn't it? Exactly. And, and it's the union members that are a reason these cases are going forward. Let's not forget that. Uh, right now, we're talking about two cases here in Oregon that are in front of the Supreme Court, Wright and Zelensky. Um, but the scope of this is much larger, Lars. Remember that uh, the Freedom Foundation in the last two years filed 16 cases of forgery uh, on the West Coast. And those are only the cases that actually came to fruition to a lawsuit. Uh, we had 77 instances, Lars, of public employees reaching out to us um, who either very happily accepted the generous settlement brought forward by the union or were simply scared uh, because the unions today still rely on, on fear and intimidation that they didn't want to move forward with a lawsuit. Um, this is a very significant issue that's not just happening in the Northwest. It's happening across the country, and that's why we need the Supreme Court to step in and uh, enforce Janet. So there were cases in which the union managed to buy its way out of trouble by saying, okay, we'll settle, we'll stop taking your money, and we'll, we'll, get, we'll write you a check to keep these people from pursuing the case further. Absolutely. And when you're talking about uh, home care workers, for example, who relatively don't make a, a lot of money, uh, a lot of times it's not that much above minimum wage. Um, if a union's at offering a $10,000, $100,000 settlement, uh, which we've seen here, it's pretty hard to say no to that, and we don't blame them. Um, and that's why we're very thankful for our plaintiffs that are willing to charge this all the way to the finish line, um, and hopefully we'll get a friendly decision from the United States Supreme Court. Well, and, and in fact, when you go to those people, I would imagine that like most settlements that happen in court, part of the settlement says the union admits no wrongdoing. Is that right? Am I right? Of course. <laughs> So, so, I mean, where, where you'd say, well, if the union agreed to pay the person money for having wrongfully taken money out of their paycheck, they're admitting they did something wrong. But part of what they buy is they buy the admission by the person who's getting the $10,000 check. You're going to stop accusing us of breaking the law uh, because we admit to no wrongdoing and you're taking the ten grand or whatever it happened to be uh, in exchange for your silence. They're buying the silence of those union members. And I think that just goes to show, um, again, the broad scope of this issue, that that's actually the cheaper option for them, um, paying these enormous settlements um, than the lasting change that uh, a, a court order would make them to change these policies because they're going to be making so much money um, by these fraudulent signatures.
Well, I certainly hope that the Supreme Court decides to take this one up, settle it out, and change the law for the whole country, and it's coming from right here in the Northwest. That's Jason Dudash with the Freedom Foundation. If you're a union member, what would you think of your union? If they said, we're taking money out of people's checks, and we don't care if they're members of the union or not. We don't care if we have legal authority. We'll forge their name on a document if we have to. And sometimes we'll buy our ways out. And sometimes we'll ask the courts to say it's okay to take somebody's money without their written permission, even over their objections. In any case, it's Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network. Glad to get your phone calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Coming up, Seattle schools say TikTok is hurting the kids, and it's their fault the kids aren't learning. We'll get to that next. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I actually made this our Twitter poll question for the day. Should Northwest Public Schools blame social media for the school's failure to educate students? What they've done is Seattle Public Schools have sued, uh, most famously, TikTok, the Chicom-owned company. And they've said, this thing is so addictive to kids in particular. Now, as we all know, all social media steer the people who are on that social media uh, to say we're going to put things out there that will be attractive for them to keep going back. It's it's like a drug. And what they say is defendants have successfully exploited the vulnerable brains of young people, hooking tens of millions of students around the country into a positive feedback loop of excessive use and abuse of the defendant's social media platforms. Well, like anything else that people find addictive, yeah, I'm sure there's some truth to that. But is that the reason that public schools are failing to teach students? I've asked you that. Should Northwest Public Schools blame social media for the school's failure to educate kids? The failure to educate kids has been getting worse and worse for literally decades. Some of those decades even predate the existence of social media. It also looks like Seattle Public Schools saying, hey, there's some deep pockets over there and we might be able to latch on to some cash. I would say no. The public schools should not be able to blame social media for the school's failure to educate kids. And do I think parents should be on top of the kind of social media that young men and women are using? Yes, they should. And if they get addicted to the social media and it has no other redeeming qualities like, say, a job skill, uh, then that's on the pa parents. It's also on the kids. But to say this is the thing that is the blame for all the failure to teach kids I think the schools are looking for an out somewhere. Today's Twitter poll is brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. Uh, if you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at ultimatetruckservice.com. Let's go to Don, listening on the Radio Northwest Network on this Monday. Hey, Don, welcome to the program. What's on your mind? Hey, I just want to let you know, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Um, and uh, I just want to bring up your, all this talk about the border and everything. And a few weeks ago, you had talked about how Hunter Biden uh, has a friend that is involved with a business um, where they profit from people sending money back to their families in other countries. Mm, I don't recall. And oh, 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 well, where's money transfer business? Yeah, he's he's involved in some money transfer businesses. Yes. Correct. So do you think that it's possible that that would be a reason why Biden doesn't care about having our border open is that he's just fattening the pockets of his son and his and his son's friend? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. look, I think the Biden crime family does whatever is good for the Biden crime family. And I think that Hunter's business, especially that money transfer business where they wanted to make it easier for people who come to this country illegally who are coming here 
They're coming here for one reason. They're coming here because the paychecks are better in the United States than they are in Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, and all the other crappy countries that a lot of these people have come from. And if people take that personally, say, well, you shouldn't call them crappy countries. They are crappy countries. I mean, there's a country like Guatemala where the average person makes $1,600 a year. The average worker in America makes 20 times that much money. And that's for doing just average work, manual labor. And so you say, if you can make 20 times as much money, would you come illegally into somebody else's country? Well, I wouldn't do it, but you can certainly see where it'd be attractive. And then when the president's son says, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make a business out of transferring monies back to Mexico. And of course, it might also have some other benefits because, as you know, Hunter Biden has been involved in use of illegal drugs, purchasing illegal drugs. Do you imagine the ability to transfer monies uh, without going through, say, Western Union or going through some legitimate place like a bank might be attractive to people who are in, in illicit businesses? Right. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, and Hunter Biden has hired yeah, prostitutes. Sure. Uh, so if, if you want to be able to involve, be involved in any kind of illicit business, being able to transfer large sums of money is, is a real plus if you can get away with it. So is that part of it? Yeah. But part of it, I think, Don, is that the Democrat Party sees its future in these illegal aliens. And here's why. Uh, the Democrat Party right now is an odds-on favorite to lose elections. They're losing a lot of their traditional support from labor unions, from people of color and others. And they say they need a new dependent class of people. And by dependent class, I mean they need people like the six million who've come in illegally. Uh, when Donald Trump becomes president in a couple of years, those illegal aliens are not going to find a warm welcome in America. But under Joe Biden, they do. So. At the point right. where they get their status legalized, and Joe Biden plans to do exactly that. He wants to legalize the status of all the illegal aliens already in America, which is 22 to 30 million people. He also wants to legalize the status of the other 6 million that have come in in the last two years. And if he does that, will those people feel that they owe something to a Democrat president or other members of the Democrat Party? I think they will. Now, does business play a role in this? Yeah, I think they do. Business loves the idea of a cheap source of abundant labor, you know, because it not only gives them, even if you never hire an illegal alien, if there's a giant pool of illegal labor, it tends to hold wages down. And you can see why it would. Right. If somebody's running a landscaping company and they say, well, I got to find people who are willing to go out in the all kinds of weather, uh, whether it's very hot or whether it's rainy and cold, uh, and I need them to be able to work hard for me and work for this amount of wages. If there's a big pool of cheap labor and it's illegal aliens, whether you're hiring illegals or Americans, it holds your costs down. So there's an element there. And it's an easy problem to solve if the government chose to do it. Don, thanks for the call. Lars here with a question for you. Why is it that some people aren't as stressed out about the future as you'd think they would be? 
The answer, they're probably among the millions of Americans who prepared themselves with emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. If the worst ever happens, literally millions of American families are already protected from dealing with those empty store shelves. Is yours? Mine is. If not, go to MyPatriotSupply.com right now and grab some emergency food kits, at least one for every member of your family. These kits give you a wide variety of delicious meals that average over 2,000 calories per day. That's what you need. Everything stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. Order your kits right now by going to MyPatriotSupply.com. Your order ships fast and arrives discreetly in unmarked boxes. Listen, this is something you need to jump on now before the next news headline stuns the world. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's my pleasure to be with you, and I'll be glad to get to your phone calls and emails in a while. By the way, all of next week, we're going to be broadcasting from SHOT Show, which is the Shooting, Hunting, Outdoor Trade Show. It's basically everybody who makes guns, everybody who makes scopes, everybody who makes knives, everybody who makes outdoors gear, strategic and tactical gear, night vision goggles, the whole nine yards. They're all going to be gathered at the biggest trade show for that purpose, I think, in the world. It's going to be in Las Vegas. We've missed it for the last couple of years. I'm glad to be going back. And there are a lot of Northwest companies that are represented there i'll let you know more about it as the week goes on but glad to be with you glad to take your calls you hear us talk about the homeless problem all the time i have for more than 25 years uh, and one of the problems is i don't think the powers that be are taking this problem seriously i want to play a soundbite for you we played it for you once about a week or 10 days ago and it's from a, a lady who's living on the streets here in the pacific northwest living in a tent and you think, well, that's a miserable experience, except that from her point of view, it actually is kind of easy. It's easy as long as you just think of it as I have food to eat, I have drugs to get high, and that's all I need. Take a listen to that soundbite right now. So how is it like being homeless in Portland? It's a piece of cake, really. I mean, that's why you probably got so many out here, because they feed you three meals a day. You don't have to do sh but stay in your tent or party, or if you smoke a lot of dope, you can do that. Um, mm. What else? What else, Melissa? What else do I say? Well, I'm being interviewed. Um, What's yeah, that? that's really it. It's like you wake up, you go eat a blanche, get high. Go eat a blanche for lunch, get high. Go eat dinner, get high. And that's all you do all day long, every day. <clears throat> It's a piece of cake. Now, the guy who got that soundbite from the lady is named Kevin Dahlgren. And I decided to bring him on because I wanted to talk to him about this issue because I think Kevin has a good idea of how to solve this problem. And he sees where the solutions that are applied, whether it's Portland, Seattle, Spokane, Eugene, uh, why those solutions on which we are literally spending the better part of half a billion dollars a year between the two states, uh, why those solutions are not working. Kevin, welcome to the program. Hi, Lars. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. That's a very telling soundbite you got from that lady. And you said your impression of people living on the streets is most of them are abundantly honest about their circumstances and about uh, about what keeps them there. Yeah, they are. They have no reason to lie. I mean, this is the great thing about interviewing the homeless is it's, they're extremely truthful. It's very authentic. I've been doing this for the last year to really just uncover the truth from the streets. And what I'm hearing 
A, 95% of the time is that outreach workers are not talking to them. They've never even seen one, even though we read about it every day. You know, my question is, where is all these multi-millions of uh, dollars going? Is if 95% of everybody I talked to in interview said, I've never talked to an outreach worker. And I go everywhere. It's not like I focus on just one part of Portland. So, yes, she was being brutally honest. And to me, that was a call for help, right? Yeah. She, she basically said, you know, they are loving us to death. And what she was talking about is the city. And so you, you say you've you've worked in social services for over 20 years, right? So your whole yes, stock and I, trade I has been dealing with people who have problems and how those problems Correct. exhibit themselves, right? Yep. Since the 90s, yes. All right. And you said that uh, what happens Portland, is Mexico. nobody holds them accountable. In other words, if, if society says, we'll feed you, you can get high, you can come have another meal, get high. And if there is nobody to say, no, you can't keep living your life this way, uh, then then yep. they're going to keep on doing it. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, if we we enable, we don't empower. And because there's no accountability, if you're working with a person who's in the middle of their addiction or off their medication, of course they're going to be okay with being enabled because they don't know how to say no. What they need is structure, and they need someone to take on part they need to actually take over responsibility sometimes of their life and be like enough is enough this isn't working for you you're slow you know this is slowly killing you and the fact is that just doesn't happen and this is why we just you know watch people slowly languish and die on the streets well i'm just curious have you seen a change any kind of mark change since you've been doing this 20 years since Washington state effectively legalized hard drugs with a court decision and Oregon voters voted to legalize hard drugs. Oh gosh. Yeah. After 110 passed and we de decriminalized this, everything just got really about three times worse. Uh, and what I say is cause I've been doing outreach in Portland, Oregon since uh, about the middle nineties is what once was a cause has become this multi-million dollar industry and I watch it slowly become that over time. It wasn't like that really in the 90s, right? And I love my uh, city of Portland. So everything just kind of got very radicalized over the last 25 years. And, yes, the decriminalization of drugs was like the worst decision ever. I mean, all you have to do is walk downtown Portland and agree with me that it's the worst decision ever. Well, and, Kevin, I pointed out to people that, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a judge, I'm not a social worker, but mm -hmm. over the years, I had judges tell me that if you haul somebody in front of them charged with possession of hard drugs, and you say to them, you're going to get convicted of a felony, you, you may not actually do any time in prison, but there's going to be a felony, and it's going to be trouble, or you can take treatment, that the judges mm -hmm. have told me that was a great way to get people into treatment, because oftentimes, confronted with that yes-no, that accountability yep. moment, they said, okay, I'll go into treatment. And the judge would say, and if you stay in treatment for a year, they might fall off from time to time. But if you get back on the wagon and you finish it, you can finish out with no criminal charge at all. And yet the do-gooders said, oh, charging someone with a crime doesn't actually help. I actually think it did. It 100% does. What I have found is, and uh, I do a lot of uh, outreach uh, in Portland and also in Seattle, uh, and we uh, uh, organized trash picks where we clean up old camps and just try to restore and reclaim our city parks. And oftentimes we recruit the homeless to help us clean up, right? 
And what we find, rather than us, them giving us a hard time, they say, thank you. Thank you for giving me purpose. They are thanking us because we're giving them responsibility because for the first time in their lives, they're not being enabled. And I've been telling this to people for years is, you know, the homeless are human. They, you know, we as humans by nature want to have responsibility, right? And then want to meet those responsibilities to make other people proud. And this is what they do. And so we need to rethink everything that we are being, <laughs> I guess, taught or hear about on, on, on most of the news. That and it's Kevin, not, it's a just, so, just so people know where to find it, you put some of the stuff on Twitter. Do you put it up anywhere else online where people can look at some of these videos? It's mostly Twitter, but also we have uh, we, WeHeartSeattle.org, which is a nonprofit um, attached to. And then uh, we have a WeHeartPortland.org also. All right. We Heart Seattle and We Heart Portland as well. That's Kevin Dahlgren. I wanted to give him full credit for that soundbite. I think it spoke volumes. A woman who says, yeah, it's piece of cake. Get high, eat, get high, eat, get high, eat, until I guess at some point you end up dying. Back in a moment, Americans, I think, should reject the government forcing choices on them that they don't want. We'll get to that in your calls. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails, even the naysayer calls. In fact, especially the naysayer calls. If you want to jump into the best conversation in talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, that is, you disagree with my point of view, you're perfectly welcome. In fact, you're more than welcome. We'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com, and you can vote in our Twitter poll. You'll find that two places, at Lars Larson Show on Twitter and at LarsLarson.com on the web. Now, I am sick and tired of the government forcing choices on Americans that they don't want to make on their own. I think people should be free to make their own choices about things. Now, I'm not talking about criminal acts. Of course, we need laws that say it's illegal to rape or rob or murder people. Those are things where the government has a decided role to protect public safety and say there are certain things you're not allowed to do. The problem is the government has taken that mandate way beyond the ordinary criminal acts that we're talking about they have now decided, and we've seen the evidence over the last two years, when given the opportunity, the government will say, we will force people to wear masks. We will force people to shut down their businesses. We will force people to take the jab. We'll force them by saying, if you don't do what we tell you to do, then we're going to get you fired. We're going to take away your professional license. But now they've gone beyond that. There are governments now that want to force people to buy electric cars instead of more efficient gasoline and diesel cars. That's a good example of what they're willing to do, to where they take the choice away from you. If you want to buy a Tesla, go ahead and buy a Tesla, especially if you can afford the freight, because they're north of $60,000, and a comparable gasoline-powered car is considerably cheaper, cheaper enough that you could drive a long ways on the gasoline you could buy uh, in the price difference between an electric car and a comparable internal combustion car. But now they plan to go even beyond that. They want to forbid you right now the choice of certain home appliances. Now, if you tell me, Lars, they've already done this with washing machines, with dishwashers, with air conditioners. They're literally taking their, we're going to force this down your throats to a level where they're going to tell you what you can buy and what you cannot buy. 
I know, for example, before I get into the details on this about stoves, the stove where you cook the food for your family, they've already decided that in some places you can't buy certain kinds of computers because the government has decided in its infinite rocket scientist-like wisdom that those computers are not nearly efficient enough. But now there's a brand new move, and it's not coming out of the Congress. If it was coming out of the Congress, I could say, well, if the people's representatives vote for it, all you can do is say vote for different people at the next election. No, this is coming out of an agency called the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Now, here's what they're going to do. They are opening up public comment sometime this winter, so sometime in the next few months, about whether or not to ban you from using a propane or natural gas stove in your kitchen. They may even ban the manufacturing and the importation of those appliances. And it's coming from the new Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, appointee, the one who runs this organization, Richard Trumka Jr. Now, if that name sounds familiar and unusual, you're right. It is familiar and unusual. There was a Richard Trumka who's a very powerful part of America's labor unions. And I would imagine, I, I've got to check and see, but I believe this to be his son. I can't imagine how many Richard Trumkas there are. There aren't a whole lot of Lars Larsons either. But here's what Trumka has said. He told Bloomberg News, this is a hidden hazard. Any option is on the table. Products that cannot be made safe can be banned. Now, natural gas and propane, but more natural gas stoves, are used, just so you understand, in about 40% of all the homes in the United States. And you wonder, well, why? Well, if you've never cooked on gas, um, I'm not a cook. I'm, I, I have no talents in the kitchen whatsoever. But if you talk to people who are cooks, they'll tell you anybody who's worth his salt or her salt as a chef is going to cook on gas and not on an electric stove. I don't find a whole lot of chefs, and I don't know a whole lot of chefs, but I've known a few over the years. They'll tell you gas is the only way to go. So why do they want to ban you from buying or even importing to the United States natural gas-powered stoves? Well, here's the argument they're using. They're saying that nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, and fine particulate matter are coming out of those stoves, and that it's been linked to illness, to cardiovascular problems, to cancer, and things like asthma. I'm going to tell you something. We've talked about this subject before. The best studies that they have done show that there are certain kids who seem to show higher levels of, say, asthma. And you say, well, that shows that the natural gas stove must be the culprit. No, it doesn't, because the same study that showed it when the kid lives in what's called multifamily housing, in other words, in an apartment building, is suffering from more asthma than the average kid in a single-family home. So are they measuring the effect of the stove, or are they measuring the effect of poverty? Now, not everybody who lives in an apartment or a condo is poorer than the people who live in single-family homes. But in general, people who live in single-family homes are better off financially than people who are in apartment buildings. And there may be better ventilation in a single-family home than in an apartment building. In fact, the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers says that cooking, the idea that cooking produces harmful emissions, 
regardless of the kind of stove used. Ventilation is really where the discussion should be rather than banning one particular type of technology. Banning one type of cooking appliance is not going to address the questions about overall air air quality indoors. We may need some behavior change. We may need the people to actually turn on the hood that is over their stove when they're cooking. And by the way, having had uh, a little bit of experience with remodeling of a couple of houses that Tina and I have lived in, if you ask, can I have a stove, can I have a cook stove without having a ventilation hood over it? If you live in a very old home that's grandfathered in, sure. But otherwise, new construction, you've got to provide some ventilation. And what they say is the American Gas Association says, look, the EPA and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, they do not present gas ranges as a significant contributor to adverse air quality. You know where this is coming from? It's coming from the Biden administration. They want you to stop using natural gas. And why? Because it's inexpensive, because it's efficient, because it gets the job done. And the studies they're referring to do not say what they claim that they, that they say. They say only that if you have poor ventilation in your home, your kids are likely to be sicker. Well, that's true whether you cook food or order Grubhub every single night. Fact is, they want to ban Americans and they want to dictate to you, this is the kind of car you'll drive. And these other cars, you're forbidden to even buy them. This is the kind of washing machine, dishwasher, air conditioner that you're required to buy. You are not allowed to have anything else. They want to get right down to where they are dictating every single element of your life. Now, if you think that's the job of government, you'd make a bang-up naysayer caller. I'd love to hear somebody advance that argument with something behind it. 866-HEY-LARS. Naysayers to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Show. Coming up, did the Associated Press take payoffs to promote climate change coverage? And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get to your phone calls and emails at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And as a bit of background, if you consider it a conflict or a dog in the fight, as I like to call it, uh, I've been in the news business this year, 48 years, so I've had a lot of dealings with the Associated Press, which is a, they used to call it a wire service. I guess we still do call it a wire service because uh, the news would actually come down a wire to a teletype and would be typed out. These days it travels through satellite coverage and then comes down to computers in newsrooms all over America. And it's not a private company, uh, nor is it a government agency. It is, in fact, a cooperative of its members. So all the TV and radio stations and other users of the AP pay a fee to use it, but it's not a private company. It's owned by its members. So, And I, at one point, sat on a, a local AP board of directors. Not that we made any gigantic uh, you know, decisions, but, uh, but we did talk about the way that news got covered. And one of the things I never thought the Associated Press would ever do is take money from an interested party to direct the direction of the coverage of news that they offered up. But it appears that's exactly what happened. And I thought we'd talk about it with Tom Harris, who's executive director of the International Climate Science Coalition. Tom, welcome to the program. Hey, great to be on, Lars. So what do we know about what the AP took and what did they agree to do for a princely sum like $8 million? 
Well, it's hard to know what they actually agreed to do, but they certainly got money from climate activist groups and foundations. You know, for example, you know, the Hewlett Foundation, groups like that, who actually contributed hundreds of millions to the climate scare, to actually promoting it. And, and you know, this continues a trend that we've seen in the media for quite some time. Locally here in Ottawa, I asked the editor uh, of a, a major paper, I can't say which one, why they were only covering one side of the climate issue. And they told me at first that they supported the point of view of Al Gore. And I asked them, well, do you have anybody on staff who has a Bachelor of Science? And they said, well, no. I said, so why are you really doing it? And he said, well, our advertisers wouldn't like it. And I thought, hmm, yeah, catastrophe sells, increases circulation, advertisers would like that. But even more, they sell ads to companies that use the climate scare to sell their products. So the last thing they're going to want, of course, is a scientist on the next page saying, well, you can't control climate change. So this has really been going on, I think, for many decades. The thing with AP is really blatant, millions of dollars from climate activist groups is obviously going to sway their coverage of climate change. And so that's a real big problem. And I think people are becoming much more skeptical. If you look at recent polls, trust in the media has gone way down. And that's actually a good thing because so much of it is biased. Well, and it's see, I think the thing they're selling is their credibility. Because if you say we're a news organization, and when I was a reporter, I covered both sides. On this talk show, even though I put my opinion in, I always invite the naysayers to call and say, if you've got a contrary point of view to mine, you, you'll go to the head of the line. And you'll be able oh, to, yeah. you know, you, you can make the case to my audience, Lars is full of baloney, and I can make the case that, no, I'm not. And then my audience can make up their minds. That's what a good news organization does. It presents all points of view. And if they tell you your point of view is for sale, then they've sold out and they ought to lose their credibility, shouldn't they? Yes, exactly. And it also takes away the opportunity for audience people to change their point of view when they hear more information. I used to be a climate um, scare pusher in some of my presentations. I actually talked about how the greenhouse effect could become disastrous if we weren't careful. And it was only because a local scientist told me, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. And he showed me why. So if the media actually portray both sides in arguments, then you're right. The public can make up their own mind. And, you know, in the extreme weather case, for example, there are lots of examples to show that much of the media coverage is completely ridiculous, that extreme weather records, especially in the United States, on a statewide basis, not one extreme weather record was set in the whole of 2020, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And if you go back to 1936, you find that 27 extreme records were set, and they still stand to this day. So that kind of statistic people should hear. Yeah, they should. And and I guess what troubles me the most about this, Tom, I told you my or I mentioned my background with the AP. But one of the concerns they always had when I was on a board was the AP, because it's a cooperative, basically everybody who's a member has to pitch in. You know, you pay a fee, depending on whether you're a big newspaper or small one, big radio or TV or small. And but it's owned by its members and its members want it to be relatively agnostic. Just cover the news send us the wire. We're, we're going to put some of it in our newspapers or on our radio or TV stations. But they always tried to stay away from things that might bias them one way or another. This sounds like they've completely sold out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's interesting because in many ways, 
these media people who have sold out are actually sabotaging the causes they say they hold dear. And, you know, a really good example is with respect to cobalt mined in the Congo by hundreds of thousands of children used for the batteries in electric vehicles. Now, they say, the media constantly say they stand for social justice and environmental protection, but they ignore these really flagrant violations of human rights. And, of course, in the Altamont Pass in California, one wind farm alone kills 116 golden eagles per year, and it's done that for 40 years. So thousands of golden eagles have been killed there. And you can go right through the list. You might remember Michael Moore, who's a very left-wing producer. He actually made enemies of everyone else on the left because he published a media, a video called Planet of the Humans, in which he showed that wind and solar power are probably the dirtiest energy sources on the planet when you look at how they're actually made. So, you know, by supporting the climate scare, they're actually supporting a destruction of the environment and human rights. Now, what does the Associated Press had to say? And I'll tell you what, we're going to reach out to them and we'll ask. I'm not optimistic that they'll agree to come on, but I'd love to ask them, how do you justify taking money, large sums of money, $8 million, from people who are interested parties? I mean, does this mean that if the local mayor or city council or uh, the county commissioner or the state legislature or the governor of a state wants to get favorable coverage, all they have to do is write the AP a sufficiently large check? Yeah, exactly. So so it's really a super conflict of interest. And, you know, one of the reasons that the climate activists get much more coverage is because they present things in a very simple way. See, the trouble is the climate is an incredibly complex system. So refuting them actually takes a little bit of time. It takes a little bit of intelligence. You actually have to look at some of the statistics and understand, for example, floods in Pakistan. No, that has nothing to do with climate change, but it does have to do with the fact that they've deforested most of their country. Because when rain falls on a forest, most of it is absorbed by the roots and then re-emitted by the leaves back into the atmosphere. But when you take away the forest, it all goes into runoff. And of course, with no roots to hold the soil in place, it takes away the the soil as well. So you have landslides too. So, I mean, that takes a little bit of digging. It's not quite as easy to say as climate change caused it. So they just simply go with the climate change thing, even though it makes no sense. Yeah. And Tom, I got to tell you, right now we're seeing these record snowpacks on the West Coast of America. And you say that's great because California and the West Coast have had some dry years. And if you talk to hydrologists and scientists, they'll say, yeah, California and the West Coast go through dry years, maybe six or seven of them. And then they'll go through some generally wetter years. What do you do in that case? Well, you store up during the wet years so that you have water to use during the dry years, except that the very projects that would have stored all that water you know like right now when when there's an abundance of rainfall on the west coast you say but we didn't let them build those water projects why because we were trying to save the environment so we said no to water projects that would have saved the environment because building the water projects dams and reservoirs would have wrecked the environment so now we're going to wreck the environment in a different way That's Tom Harris. He is the executive director of the International Climate Science Coalition. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time. To your phone calls and emails coming up next at 866-HEY-LARS, naysayers go first. Emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network.
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. I want to make a major correction to something I said last week. But before I do that, let me tell you, this segment of the Radio Northwest Network is brought to you by NickShivers.com for an instant offer to sell your home immediately. No showing, no hassles, and you pick the closing date. NickShivers.com for details. And I want to tell you about our Twitter poll today. It has to do with Seattle schools. Uh, Seattle schools have now filed a major lawsuit against TikTok and other social media. And what is it they're saying? They're saying that social media has become uh, designed to be addictive, especially for young people. And what they say is defendants have successfully exploited the vulnerable brains of young people, hooking tens of millions of students around the country into a positive feedback loop of excessive use and abuse of the defendant's social media platforms. Worse, the content the defendants curate and direct to youth is often harmful and exploitative. So, Seattle Public Schools believe they have an excuse for why they have not been educating your kids. So my question on our Twitter poll, uh, should Northwest schools public blame public, uh, should they blame social media for the school's failure to educate your kids? I would say no to that. I think the schools have a job to educate kids. I think they should communicate with parents. I think parents should communicate with their kids and say, you're spending too much time on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram or whatever. But to say, we can't possibly educate your kids. Fine, let, let's defund the schools. Because if you can't get the job done, given the circumstances around you, whether it's social media, whether it's a drug culture or whatever, then why are we spending tens of billions of dollars to fund public education? You realize, of course, that in Washington State, just like in Oregon, about $18,000 per student per year is spent in K-12 through public schools. I'm not talking university. I'm saying public schools. $18,000 per student per year, and they're saying, but we can't get the job if so, done if social media is there, so therefore we're going to sue. I think this lawsuit has two specific purposes, and shame on Seattle Public Schools for bringing it. Number one, they see a deep pocket in TikTok and the other social media, and they think we can get them to write us a big check. And, you know, if you say, well, Lars, governments wouldn't do something like that. Really? You've never heard of the master tobacco settlement where states decided to sue the tobacco companies for something that people voluntarily used that was addictive. And the state said, well, that's caused some damage. So pay us a giant pile of money. And in the end, the courts decided that the states would get a giant pile of money from the tobacco companies for what? Most of the states just took the money and they spent it. Did it have anything to do with serving the people who were actually smoking or getting them off of cigarettes? No, not at all. It was just a giant pile of money. And as far as I'm concerned, most governments, well, they're a bit like somebody who every time they see an extra dollar floating around, they say, how can I get my hands on that dollar? Now, on Friday, I ask you this. Should a Northwest state representative keep his seat in the legislature, in this case in Olympia, after serial lying about his life? And his alleged military service turns out he lied a lot about it. Shiftwa has suggested that Clyde Shavers have to leave the legislature. 89% of you said he should not keep his seat in the legislature. I agreed with that side of the vote. Only 11% of you said yes. Now, last week, I mentioned that system development charges and other permits and fees, if you're building a house, and this, I think, applies, this is specific to Oregon, but I think it applies just as well in Seattle, could cost you fifty or $60,000 before you ever even turned over a shovel full of dirt. 
Turns out that I was way off. Oregon Catalyst reports that the minimum now to build a house in the Portland metro area before you buy the land, before you buy the lumber, before you pay for the labor, $100,000 in permit and what they call system development fees. $100,000. So you have land, the value of which is jacked up artificially by things like urban growth boundaries. So uh, urban growth boundaries due to the cost of land, what the OPEC cartel once did to the cost of oil. They artificially limit the supply of land, even though there's plenty of land in the Northwest. Human beings right now occupy less than 4% of all the land in Oregon and Washington. So when you hear people say, well, you know, we've just covered every inch of the state. No, you've covered less than 4% of the state. The other 96% of the state is still all natural, all well, you know, it's, it's, it's out there for the birds and everything, the birds and the game animals and everything else. But a 5,000-square-foot lot, that's a minimal lot, 50 by 100 feet, costs about $300,000. This is in Portland. It costs more in Seattle. Then $100,000 in permit and system development fees. You've already spent $400,000, and you haven't built a single thing. That means the mortgage costs. When you hear public officials, especially elected officials, bemoaning the high cost of housing and how, oh, there's just no affordable housing, Understand that two of the biggest drivers of that, number one, system development charges, $100,000 of the house cost is going to go straight to government without buying anything. The other $300,000 is to buy a minimum 5,000 square foot lot, 50 by 100, the kind of minimum lot you see in most towns in the Northwest, and three hundred grand for that. Why? Because the government artificially limits the amount of land that anybody can build on, even though there's plenty of land out there. And so you say 400 grand, and I haven't built a house. I've got an empty piece of land and a big pile of permits from the government. Now, if that makes sense to anybody, what would be the easiest thing to change? The cost of labor, the cost of materials, the cost of land, or the cost of the government permits to build on it. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Oregon Utility Notification Center wants to remind you that whether you're planting a tree, building a fence, or just making improvements around your farm or home, click or call before you start your work to get the area marked. Then dig safely and avoid contact with buried utilities. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones. Know what's below. Call before you dig. For more information, visit us online at digsafelyoregon.com. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and we proudly serve the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, providing, we hope, every day, honestly provocative talk radio. And if you want to join the best conversation around, it's right here at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Our Twitter poll, and this is kind of an interesting one, Seattle Public Schools have decided to sue a number of social media companies, most notably TikTok, charging that TikTok's addictive social media is the thing that's keeping the public schools from actually teaching kids successfully. So they've got tens of billions of dollars a year money, and they say, but we can't get the job done because of TikTok. And so we want, to, we want TikTok to write a big check to the Seattle Public Schools, and what? 
I'd, I'd love to see TikTok, which is a ChiCom controlled con- uh, company, I'd love to see them banned from the United States altogether. Although that doesn't answer the broader question about social media and its addictive qualities for kids. But I do, I do have to admit this to you. I have a particular liking to Representative Jim Walsh's ideas. I think his ideas are entirely sensible, which then makes me wonder whether or not the uh, legislature in Olympia will actually adopt any of them. But Representative Walsh joins me now from Aberdeen. How are you doing, Representative Walsh? Good to talk to you again, Lars. I am, uh, I am from Aberdeen, but I'm here at the Capitol in Olympia today. It is the first day of the 2023 legislative session. And... Uh, we plan to stop uh, stop the bad stuff and maybe sneak in a couple of good things. Well, there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about that are ideas you threw out, but, but wh- which one would you call your favorite bill that you'd love to see the legislature in Olympia pass? Oh, gosh, there are, there are a couple. I mean, uh, I think that uh, getting the school choice bill to get some traction would be a major achievement. I don't know if we can do that in the current makeup here, but we have a very good kind of first step to implementing a true school choice system here in Washington, uh, structured along the lines of what they're doing down in Arizona now. Um, it's, it wouldn't be quite as ambitious as the Arizona program, but it'd be a step in that direction. And uh, I'm really hoping at least to get at a hearing so that we can keep the discussion and the debate on giving parents and families, grandparents and families, uh, control over their kids' education. I think it's the, the essential step toward reform and better better results, better outcomes. I suppose it's not politic to remind your Democrat friends, who I'm sure are the biggest opponents of this, that they always love to talk choice when they're talking about killing babies. But apparently when it comes to educating your kids, not choice so much, huh? Exactly. Or uh, whether or not you need to take a, an emergency utilization authorization uh, uh, shot in order to have a state government job. They don't like choice there either. Did you notice Seattle Fire Department just now dropped its mask mandate for its firefighters? I couldn't believe my friend Ari Hoffman told me about it, but he said, look, he's got the memo. They say you no longer have to wear a mask while you're driving somewhere in fire apparatus. So you imagine all these firefighters (laughs) wearing masks sitting in a vehicle while they're sitting there with a bunch of people they literally live with when they're on duty. And, and they've had to do that all the way up till now. And, and that brings me to House Bill, what is it, 1154, the one that would safeguard churches and other religious institutions from the kind of attacks we saw over the last two years. Would you mind describing what you'd like to get the legislature to sign off on? Correct. This is a, another uh, really reasonable restraint on, on emergency powers. It essentially says that uh, during a declared emergency, when a governor is operating through proclamations, non-legislative emergency proclamations, that uh, churches and synagogues and temples and mosques and other uh, religious institutions, organizations and, and locations don't have to comply with orders to close. So uh, it's a fact that during uh, uh, our governor's uh, harshest lockdowns and shutdowns, uh, a number of churches had to operate, but they operated secretly. And, uh, and I think that's shameful. And uh, I, uh, I'd like to see that houses of worship and religious institutions can continue to operate uh, despite a, a governor's uh, 
non-legislative and, in my opinion, non-constitutional edicts that they have to close. And, and Lars, as you well know, when this was all going on, I mean, liquor stores stayed open, pot shops stayed open, and, and I mean, good for them, but I think churches should have stayed open, too. I think so, too. The idea that Jay Inslee, without even asking the people's representatives, could take us back to the kind of policies adopted toward churches during the early part of the Roman Empire. You know, where you say, you can be a Christian, but boy, don't tell anybody you're a Christian or you'll be in big trouble. Uh, that, that's, that's a pretty shameful thing for Inslee to do, especially when his own party wouldn't even call him on it. That's correct. That's correct. There, was a, there weren't a lot of profiles on courage during that time. And so so let's clean up our statutes. Let's clean up our state law and let's make sure that we don't need courage next time. But there is when and if there's another uh, event like that. And and the new term of art, Lars, you may have already heard it, is mass disabling event. That that term is starting to sneak into some not great bills and, and proposed legislation that this or that will happen when a mass disabling event occurs. So when the next mass disabling event occurs, I want to make sure the churches can stay open, amongst other things. Well, and do you think, should we expect that governments, not just the federal government, but state governments, are not only anticipating, but planning for the next time they try to shut a, shut everything down? Well, that's the, that's the disturbing part, is there are so many indications in what Inslee did here, what, what Brown did uh, on your side of the river and in Oregon, uh, that what these local regional governors did was a kind of dress rehearsal, frankly, to see how much unconstitutional, extra-legal activity they could get away with with these proclamations and edicts. And we who believe in the Constitution have to push back. We have to put clear lines around what uh, uh, an executive branch person can do uh, at the drop of a hat during a declared emergency. We need to protect our foundational rights. And, uh, and, and I think there's a chance, Lars, for some bipartisan traction on these issues. Not a lot, but if we pick our fights, if we, if we focus on narrow points in policy, I think we can get some bipartisan support. Well, I wanted to throw this at you because I just saw it pop up today. You've watched what China's been doing. I mean, you know, there are lockdowns bad enough, look like nothing compared to what the Chai Kham government does to its own population. Their third most populous county. So I guess I'd think it'd be equivalent to, say, Cook County, Illinois, in terms of population. Their third most populous county. They've had all these massive lockdowns and 90 percent of the people in that province, Henan province, are infected with COVID. So if anybody thinks the lockdowns work, you know, we can only lock things down the way the Chinese do. Yeah, it doesn't appear to do much of anything at all. That's Representative Jim Walsh. He represents the Aberdeen area. And, of course, there's 1154 to safeguard churches and synagogues and other religious institutions during the lockdowns that you know those Democrats out there are planning for the next time. You're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. So what should the new House of Representatives under its bare, and it is a bare majority of Republicans, and not all of them all that conservative, because we saw that fight last week as the fight went on over who would be House Speaker and what rules would he have to operate under? Well, late Friday night, uh, last Friday night, Kevin McCarthy finally won the House Speakership, but only after giving up 
a certain amount of control by promising to do a certain number of things. And I had a lot of people saying, well, we don't like this. We don't like all the, all the hoorah about the fact that, uh, that the Republicans don't just drop into line and vote for whoever it is that the party says should be the House Speaker. I was glad to see it. I was glad to see that a relatively small group of real conservatives would say to the House Speaker, we want you to make some reforms. We want you to vote on the border. We want you to vote on a balanced budget uh, act, whether that passes or not, whether it becomes law or not, whether or not you could make make it part of the Constitution, which I think it should be part of the const- state Constitution. And it's not impossible. I mean, consider the fact that every state in America, uh, I think there might be one exception, but most of the 50 states have a requirement in their state constitution that says the state has to operate on a balanced budget. It can spend no more money than it takes in. Now, some states do some borrowing, but they also operate their budget. If they if they bring in $10 billion, that's all they get to spend. If they bring in $100 billion, that's all they get to spend. And yet the federal government has, for decades, always spent more money than it ever took in. They're like that friend of yours who every time he gets a raise, he says, well, now that I got a raise, I'll be able to meet all my bills. The problem is, you know, to a fair certainty that that friend, whatever he makes, if he makes 50,000, he'll spend every dime and then some. If he makes 100,000, he'll spend every dime and borrow more on top of that. That's the road to ruin as far as I'm concerned. But in this case, You have a House Speaker who's had to agree we will get some things done. And he's also made it easier that if his own party says, you're not being a good speaker, you're not doing the job you promised to do, uh, Kevin McCarthy had to agree to make it even easier to remove him from the job if he's not doing the job. And as I said last week, I said, I think that's fine. Every single working employee in America, including probably most of you listening to this program, know If I go to work and I don't do a job in a way that makes the boss happy, the boss can send me down the road with a pink slip in my pocket. Now, what would I like to see the House of Representatives get done? I've had that question from so many people, so I thought I'd answer it for you. They've got a House majority. They do not have a majority in the Senate. They do not have the White House. But if you think that some things can be done, the Democrats always talk a great game about how bipartisan they're going to be willing to be and Republicans do as well. I thought Donald Trump was actually very bipartisan. He was constantly calling on the Democrats saying, if I can't do business any other way, I'll do business with you. Would you like to talk to me about some of your ideas? And Nancy Pelosi always just flat out refused to have anything to do with Donald Trump to the point where if she'd go over to visit the White House, she'd usually come out of there spitting blood and saying, oh, you know, we can't agree with him on anything. This is the same group of people that wants to persuade you that they're willing to be bipartisan. They're bipartisan as long as whatever you do is what they want you to do. But with that brand new majority, what could get done that actually means something to the American people? Let's start with inflation. And let's start with the fact that the government's policies are pushing inflation higher. All of this crazy spending is actually fueling inflation instead of the other way around. The second thing, and actually, to his credit, Kevin McCarthy has said this will be the first issue that the new House of Representatives takes up. Joe Biden demanded $8 billion to hire 87,000 IRS agents. And a lot of us said, hold on a second. 
Why does the IRS need 87,000 agents? And Joe Biden then, like he has so many times, lied to the American public. He said, well, we're going to be going after rich people. We're not going to increase the number of audits that are done of average folks out there. Well, the fact is the IRS has done exactly that. In fact, over the last year, there have been a couple of watchdog groups that have come out and shown the number of audits the IRS did of people who make less than $100,000 a year. So a family making 50, 60, 70, 80,000, that's right in the average range for families, is finding itself audited far more often than the wealthy people out there, the people north of $400,000 a year. So what are they going to do with those 87,000 IRS agents? They're going to use them for politics. They're going to go after average folks. They're going to bother owners of small businesses, men and women, who just want to make a living. And for the most part, the IRS is not going to get a lot of extra income. Oh, you, you might say, well, we've checked all the way through your return, and you owe the government another $300. That isn't even going to pay for the cost of the IRS agents. So Kevin McCarthy has said, we're going to vote on whether or not the IRS should be allowed to add those 87,000 agents. Now, they certainly haven't added them yet. They were planning to add them over a period of time. But the IRS is already out of control. It's already used for political purposes. I want to see more parental rights and education. And frankly, this shouldn't be a federal decision at all. Education is going to be run best when the decisions are made close to home. That is either at the state level in the 50 states or at the local level in the individual communities. But to the extent that the federal government has any say-so at all, because the Department of Education does hand out a lot of money for education, not the majority, certainly. If, if you say, well, you know, the U.S. government should fix education, the U.S. government funds at most, in most school districts, even the bigger ones, maybe 10% of the bill. If they're paying 10% of the bill, but the other 90% of the bill is paid by you with your local state and county taxes, then you should be calling the shots, not the folks who are writing 10% of the bill. The Congress should also address the threat we face right now from the Chinese Communist Party. It's not just a military threat. It's not just the threat of dangerous diseases cooked up in Chinese labs with American taxpayer money. No, this is the threat that China wants to take the place of the United States on economics, on military, diplomatically, and in every other way. We've got to address that. And to the extent that the federal government has anything to say about it, safety and security in America's cities. Too many of the big blue cities around America have decided we're not going to arrest people. We're going to defund our police. Our prosecutors will not prosecute and judges will not send people to prison for the serious crimes that affect public safety. That's got to be addressed. And the border crisis and Joe Biden's open borders policies. Right now, he's trying to run a scam in which he says, well, we're going to discourage people from coming into America. Joe Biden has spent the last three years, one year as a candidate, two years as president now, very nearly inviting people to come to America illegally. He's allowed six million of them in. This has to be addressed right now. And the new Republican House should take a hard look at that withdrawal from Afghanistan now about a year and a half ago about the reason that so many lives were put at risk, about the reason that Joe Biden allowed what happened, the Taliban to hang on to Americans, thousands of them, after we had departed from Afghanistan, that 13 service members were murdered by a terrorist bombing during the days of that pullout. 
That was a disaster. And they should take a hard look at the corruption of the Biden crime family. That's got to be addressed. Just a few on my short list of what I'd like to see the new Republican House of Representatives do. And if they don't do it, they know we're going to kick them out of the next election. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. I want to talk to Lance LaRusso, who uh, wears a number of hats. He's a former cop, he's an attorney, and he's the author of two books in particular called When Cops Kill and Blue News, the proceeds of which go to police charities for those who've given the most, who've made the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty. Hey, Lance, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you about a term, and... Feel free to, uh, I mean, I every time I see the term cashless bail, I think, well, hold on, that's kind of a meaningless term, isn't it? Because if we say you're allowed to get bail under the Constitution for any crime except murder, some bail must be set. Now, it may be more bail than you can afford, but the bail comes in the form of either cash or something worth money. So somebody could pledge their house to get you bailed out. They could pledge other things, stocks, bonds, whatever. But if you say cashless bail, isn't that like nutritionless food? If it's nutritionless, it's not food. If it's cashless, is it still bail? No, it's interesting. So there are many ways that we secure people's return to court, and that's just a simple function of bail. We want to make sure people answer for the charges. If people have ever gotten a ticket out of state, sometimes they're forced to uh, post a bail in order to come back. We have people that are arrested for shoplifting. Sometimes they're arrested and released on their own recognizance. People call them OR bonds, own recognizance bonds. And as you said, at the other end of the spectrum, there are cases like murder where their presumption is that there is no bail unless that there are extenuating circumstances. So what you basically have is a fight going on right now where there is a blanket being approached, a blanket approach being applied that all cash bail is bad because cash bail in some instances disproportionately affects poor people. What is happening is a basically disregard for a couple of things, not only the separation of powers between the legislature legislature and the courts. The courts have an obligation to ensure people appear, but then also the purpose of the bail and one of the factors in most states is to all the states that I know of, is to make sure that the person does not reoffend or threaten victims or possess um, a, a means to threaten society. That is a function of bail. Right. So if you have that function and you say, we're just going to assume that most people charged with most crimes, murder being an exception, will simply be released without having to put any kind of security up at all. It's a flawed system, and we're seeing the effects of it right now. We're seeing in New York City several people who have been injured or killed, law enforcement officers who have been attacked by people who have been allowed out on bail. Um, you know, it's, it's just it's, it's an overwhelming thing we're seeing in the media to a point where people are forgetting how bad it is. So there was a 17-year-old who was arrested on assault charges. He was allowed out without bail, and a couple of days later, he violently, viciously attacked a law enforcement officer in a subway platform. We see this over and over and over again, and pretending it doesn't exist, pretending that certain people do not present a danger if we let them out prior to their trial uh, without securing their attendance is just fictional. Well, and in fact, I guess if you're having just an intellectual argument about this, 
saying that somebody has posted uh, $50,000 bail or they've gone to a bail bondsman who put up the money and they pay him a fee uh, to be able to put the money up doesn't mean the person won't go back out and be violent, does it? But, uh, you know, that system has worked pretty well to say to people, while you're out on bail, if you violate the terms of the bail, then the bail is forfeit. And uh, and in that case, somebody is going to owe, say, the whole 50000 Does that have an effect of of reducing the number of people who go out and and do other crimes while they're out on bail? I think it has three effects. It not only has the effect of reducing the crimes people commit because their family members who, say, put up their house are saying, hey, if you go out and reoffend, I'm going to lose my my house or I'm going to lose the money that I put up for you. The second thing it does is ensures that people will appear for court so the courts can adjudicate the crimes that they've been charged with. And third, it keeps the system moving forward so we don't have a backup with courts just literally sitting there not able to adjudicate these charges for years. Yeah, and in fact, uh, you know, I, I've seen systems where the lesser, the lower level crimes, they'll book somebody, release them, they'll violate the terms, they don't show up, then, they, then there's an arrest warrant, then they book them again. And every time they run through that system, uh, I, I've seen figures three, four, five hundred dollars Every time somebody is rearrested, it takes time of law enforcement, it takes time of the courts and the jails and everything else, that there are people who will swing through that system literally 20 times at great cost to the system of time and effort and, and actual dollars uh, with, with not, no good produced out of it. That, that kind of stuff has to stop, doesn't it? It does, and it's interesting when we talk about the Illinois Act, there's a provision there that that's going to be curious to see what happens here, that if a person is on home monitoring with an electronic monitoring device, which can work very well, the monitoring devices uh, can work uh, to basically be a force multiplier for law enforcement, so they don't have to sit and track people, and the bail bondsmen uh, know that people are compliant with their bail conditions. But there's a provision in that law that the person is not uh, construed to have absconded or skip their bail until they are gone from where they should be for 48 hours. Well, in 48 hours, you can be thousands of miles away from your home. You can literally escape the jurisdiction. And in order to get the person back to the jurisdiction, as you said, we're having to use extreme law enforcement resources to bring that person back to answer for their charges. And the system has to work with people being accountable for the criminal acts that they are accused of. They're not guilty, but they have been accused. There's been a probable cause finding. And the courts, in looking at whether or not this person will show up, has to be able to apply individual um, characteristics of the offense, the offender, their propensity to reoffend, and their ties to the community. When we take that away from the courts, it makes the courts it makes the courts less effective, and it makes the community uh, more at risk. I'm talking to Lance LaRusso, who's a former cop and an attorney and the author of When Cops Kill and Blue News, the proceeds of which go to police charities. Why do they write the rules to say you can be gone for two full days, 48 hours, before you're thought to have absconded? Why, why write the rules that way? You know, when I look at these statutes, and this is where a lot of law enforcement officers are scratching their heads, you can go on the Internet and read some of the uh, sheriffs who have just been outraged. There is no rhyme or reason to it. They have started with a premise that cash bail, bail of any sort, is bad. And until a person is proven to be guilty, which is completely beyond the probable cause standard for an arrest, 
that they should be allowed to um, roam free and be on the honor system, if you will, to come back to court. Some people will not obey that honor system. And the courts look at the person's propensity to reoffend, their criminal history, the nature and severity of the crime, whether or not the person has a job, whether they have ties to the community, even if they don't work. I've handled hundreds of bond hearings, and courts do individual analyses. So to put a one-size-fits-all, because it sounds good at a cocktail party that you're changing the system, is putting the public at risk. And law enforcement, in particular, is the one that is the group that is going to have to go round these folks up if they don't show up to court. And in the meantime, if they commit crimes, uh, then then that's that's one more one more hit on society where society had an expectation of some kind of protection from these bad guys once they've been identified once to let them go again. Maybe it'll take some civil lawsuits to actually straighten the system out. That's Lance LaRusso, former cop and attorney and the author of the books When Cops Kill and Blue News. Lance, it's a pleasure. Glad to get back to your phone calls here in a moment at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and this segment of the show is always brought to you by Valhalla Tea. Yep, helping out veterans with every bag of tea sold at ValhallaTea.com. That's ValhallaTea.com. And our Twitter poll today, should Northwest schools blame social media for the school's failure to educate your kids? Well, that's exactly what Seattle Public Schools is doing. It is blaming Twitter uh, and uh, TikTok and others saying social media is addictive. It's filling kids' heads with all kinds of addictive material that it curates and directs to youth harmful and exploitative information. Yeah, I know there are an awful lot of young people who seem to be addicted to TikTok. But to have the Seattle Public Schools say, and that's why we can't educate your kids, I think is absolutely crazy. To your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers go first at 866-439-5277. David, thanks for listening on the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? So, bail bail bondsmen, uh, I think Oregon is making a huge mistake by not doing the bail bondsman system like Washington does. Simply because when you have someone put their money where their mouth is and uh, say, hey, I'm going to watch this guy and I'm going to be responsible for him, to make sure he shows up to court, make sure he, he follows the, the release plan. You have more eyes on him. The police can't possibly be expected to watch these people when they get released from jail. So two day, even two days, I mean, they go longer than two days without checking on these people. Well, but even if you check on something, what does checking on somebody mean? Call them, have them send you a text? Call them, door knock if you, door knock if you expect I, them I'm to be willing to know, bet, breaking I, the rules. Or, Oregon has not had bail bondsmen in decades. I can't remember. It, it was before they my haven't. time, so let's let's take it back it 40 or 50 years. I know that. So. And, and here's the thing. The person who's released on bail in Oregon, because they still have bail in Oregon, you have to post 10%, and you have to sign off saying, and if I don't yeah. show up, whoever it is that vouched for me owes the entire amount. So if, you, if you're yeah. on 50000 bail, you have to post 5000 in cash. If you don't show up, that 5000 is gone. So if mom or dad has put up 5000 in cash and pledged the 50000 bail for you and you don't show up, their house is gone. Yeah. Now, now but why, mom, but mom I don't dad, think that's a bad system, dad, do you? 
I, I do, because mom and dad doesn't have the resources to hire the bounty hunters to go out and track these people down and get that $5,000 back. Well, except for this, says, okay, if well, you no, don't show, at midnight, sorry. if you don't show, you forfeit the money. So if you're, yeah. if, if you as the kid say to mom and dad, post the money for me, and then you disappear, you know, you've just screwed mom and dad. And, and I would imagine yeah. that that thought alone, or if you go to somebody and say, I don't trust you to show up, I'm not posting your even 10%. But this is something entirely mm -hmm. different. You know, this no cash bail that we were talking about with Lance LaRusso, David, this is different. What they want to do is other than murder, they want to cut everybody loose with no bail whatsoever. That's what yeah, they're that's, talking about. That's not going to work. That's even a bigger mistake than what they're doing now. Well, right. And it's in New York City. They're cutting people loose on no cash bail, and they go right back out and do more crimes because there's no consequence. David, thanks for the call. Let's go to Ron. Hey, Ron, welcome to the Radio Northwest Network. What's on your mind? Oh, brother, I love you. I'm just saying right now, I like what they did for a constitutional sense. There should be long discussions like that. That way, the Republican Party can get a backbone and be direct get to the point. But I am I'm upset and sad that one thing they did, two things they did not do on China. One, China's bringing up this fentanyl. I just got done before I went Thanksgiving, get hearing my, one of my kids, a mentor in Salem, Oregon, die of fentanyl, 15 years old. That's the sixth kid in the area, about 15 in the whole valley. And yet that is not taken care of seriously. It seems like every time we talk about China, our party kicked the can down into it, whether it's McConnell, Romney, or any of these other rhinos. And I'm hoping that the man who's from right up the area where I spent Christmas down in the San Joaquin Valley that represents Porterville all the way up to Fresno will do his job and address China, especially right he's now. He's not going to do Fresno, it. Our ally. You we know, know he's, that. he's met with the head of China. And as, as, as far as we can tell, he may, have, he may have said the word fentanyl. But he didn't say to China, you need to stop this stuff because we know that while it comes through Mexico into the United States, where it originated was mainland China. And, and we need you to shut this down. And you know that if China is capable of locking down its cities, it actually stopped locking them down about a month ago. Uh, but, but, and, and so that's ended. But if they're capable of locking down entire populations of tens of millions of people, they're certainly capable of stopping fentanyl from coming out of their country and into Mexico and then from Mexico into the United States. But I think it, it actually does what the Chicoms want. They've got an awful lot of Americans addicted to a drug. It's killing a lot of Americans. It's creating a massive problem. And Joe Biden doesn't seem to give a damn about it. When was the last time you ever remember Joe Biden saying one word about fentanyl? Not one damn time. And on top of that, you know what? Uh, McConnell need to go ahead. I'm not McConnell, but uh, our new speaker needed to say, basically, we, if China won't do it, let's cut off trade. We incentivize our tax base to bring a lot of industry back to the United States and do an America first policy. Or, That's or how you that, do it. That or, at the very least, Ron, shift it to a friendly country. Ron, think about this. If you had people you dealt with who supplied you with whatever you use in your business, lumber, you know, tires, whatever, and you can't stand those people, and you say, well, then I'm going to go do business with somebody else. I'm not going to give you my business anymore. If the United States said, hey, we can buy chips and computers from Taiwan. We can buy them from other countries. And if those other countries become unfriendly toward us, we can cut them off as well. The United States is one of the most one of the most attractive marketplaces in the world, and China needs us more than we need them.
And you've got the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.